And thanks, Josh. Well, uh, in the ancient world, everybody lived in the hope of heaven. They probably called it something else. But all humanity cherished and held on to some idea of an afterlife. But in contrast, under the leadership and teaching of Moses, the Hebrews put their hope not in an afterlife, but in a resurrection. For what they wanted was not escape from this world, but rather the transformation of it. So for us, as Hebrews in Christ, our hope, too, ultimately, is not so much the hope of heaven, but our hope is the hope of a resurrection from the dead. Uh, Under house arrest in, in Rome, in chains and under guard, Paul wrote to the Christians in Philippi, in Macedonia, about the hope that he had as a Christian. And this is an abridged version of the second half of chapter 3. He wrote, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And so I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Therefore, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So this is our hope, our glorious hope in Jesus Christ. Eternal life with God through Jesus Christ, his son, by way of resurrection and glorification. Well, um, as as Helen said, uh, this is the 12th part now of a 13-part series on the doctrines of applied redemption, how it is that God applies what Jesus has done for us, how God applies that to each of us as we believe, to us who believe. And as a doctrinal series, we're we're doing the work of, of asking a question, and then trying to answer it by seeing what Scripture says in answer to that question, and indeed attempting to build a comprehensive understanding of the answer, building a coherent theory, if you like, from lots and lots and lots of different observations, all the different things that Scripture might say on that topic. So then, with respect to today, our work is to build a doctrine of glorification. Here's possibly some questions that we should think about. Firstly, when will the resurrection happen? What will happen at the resurrection? Will I be young or old? What kind of body will I have? 
What does it mean to have spiritual bodies? Will we still be male and female? Will there be sex and family? What does it mean to live in the hope of a better resurrection? Well, in attempting to answer these questions, um, I'm going to show you my observations from Scripture, as well as I'm going to show you my conclusions. And I point this out because my conclusions in places will be speculative. You and others might draw different conclusions from the same observations. And I point that out because I think that it's important that we recognize the limitations that we face when we do doctrine together, and especially on this topic. The limitation is that we are almost certainly not able, really, to grasp now what the future age will be like. And Paul acknowledging that, that there are limits. There are, there are limits to Christian knowledge and thinking. In this age in which we live, uh, he wrote, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So for us, I think, sitting here today and talking about glorification and all such related topics, I reckon we're a bit like children discussing what we'll do when we grow up. There must always be a necessary naivety to such discussions because no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love him. So with those things in mind, let's go to the first question. When will the resurrection happen? Short answer, when Jesus returns. As we've already heard from the book of Philippians and as spoken of in many other places too. In speaking about our resurrection bodies, the final process in applied redemption, the glorification of our bodies, we should also understand that this will take place indeed at the coming of Christ in the context of the transformation of the whole world, a new heaven and a new earth, indeed heaven descending to unite heaven and earth. It will happen in the context of a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked and a judgment. Jesus will judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. Jesus will judge everyone. And all of these, are, of course, are major topics in themselves. But with respect to one little topic that we're looking at today, the glorification of the righteous, the children of God, what will happen at the resurrection? Short answer, we will get new bodies. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Listen, I, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. 
in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Then, when Jesus comes again, those who have died in Christ, their souls will be reunited with their bodies. Those who are alive at the time will be changed instantaneously. Um, will I be young or old? What kind of body will I have? What does it mean that we will have spiritual bodies? Well, as we've already heard, we will, as we've already heard, we will have the same type of body that Jesus has now. Our bodies will be transformed into that type of body. Now, when Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus, life returning to his dead body, exactly the same body as, he's, as he'd always had, only now he was all better. No longer dead, in fact, not even sick. He was fully well. But without question, it was the same type of body. And later on, Lazarus died. Hopefully, many years later and of old age, but he died. In contrast, when Jesus was raised from the dead by his father on the third day, life returns to his body, the same body that he'd always had. Indeed, the injuries from the, the nails and the, the spear were still there. But we understand that even though it was the same body that he'd always had, it was a transformed body, a body that could no longer die. It was a physical body. He was physically present. They didn't see a ghost. He, he was really there. You could touch him. And he ate and drank in their presence. He also, though, appeared in rooms and exited rooms without having to go through the doors. And there were at least two instances wherein, maybe for a variety of reasons, Jesus wasn't actually instantly recognized by people who knew him well. Why not? Well, I don't know, actually. The reason's not given precisely, but to speak conjecturally, this is conjecture, this is, this, is, this is my imagination, but perhaps they didn't recognize him instantly because all signs of aging were gone. Maybe he was miraculously younger. But we get a detailed answer to the questions that we're looking at in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll read from verse 35, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm reading from verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals another, birds another, fish another. And there are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon, another, and the stars, another, and star differs from star in splendor. 
so it will be at the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Well, um, Paul's answered our questions, but I hope just to add a few points by way of clarification. Um, Here's what Paul is doing. Firstly, Paul wants to do one of those compare and contrast exercises, two different states of being. The bodies we have now compared and contrast to the bodies we will have later. The bodies we have now, Paul refers to them as earthly or natural. The bodies we will have at and from the time of the resurrection, Paul refers to them as heavenly or spiritual. Now, secondly, when he talks about the relationship between those two bodies, the now body and the then body, there is both continuity and discontinuity. Paul uses the analogy of a seed planted in the ground. Given that dead bodies are routinely buried in graves, this is an apt metaphor because it is comforting to imagine that as we lower a coffin into the ground, we're kind of like sowing a seed, a seed that will spring to life. And the metaphor was an apt metaphor in the ancient world because they understood that a seed has to die. Now, in a real sense, nowadays, we understand that the seed itself doesn't actually die. Something else happens to it. But what they saw was that actually the seed had to die if there was going to be a plant. The seed had to stop being a seed. The seed had to die to seed them if it was going to grow up into a plant. No future without death for that seed. Continuity. The plant springs out of the ground, resulting from what was sown. At the resurrection, I will be me, and you will be you. And there will be some manner of continuity between this body of mine now and the body that God will give me then. I believe that I will recognize my body as my body. Which is good news because, as I said last week, I'm rather attached to my body. Now, with respect to um, those who say to me sometimes that they believe in reincarnation, my usual response is, no, I believe God got you right the first time. I will be me and you will be you. We might get bogged down thinking about molecules and atoms, What what if I, for example, get vaporized in the explosion of an atomic bomb? How will God find all the bits? And what if, having been turned back into dust and ashes, some of my molecules get used through, through the soil, through grass, through the cow, through the glass of milk, through ingestion, digestion, metabolism? What if some of my molecules get used by somebody else later on in history? What if bits of me turn out to be bits of somebody else? Will we have to fight over bits? Well, such imaginings are, of course, pointless. Atoms and molecules, the the ones that make up me, are constantly changing anyway. I think we can reasonably say that the miracle of resurrection is quite beyond our understanding, certainly for now. 
But God has promised to do for us what he's already done for Jesus, his son. Continuity. I will be me and you will be you, recognizably so. Discontinuity. Our bodies will be transformed in astonishing ways. From earthly, perishable, dishonorable, weak, and natural, to heavenly, imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual. In the next age, we will be neither young nor old. Rather, we will all be new. Eternally unspoilt, unspoilt, unspoilable, straight out of the box, newness forever. Behold, I am making all things new. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation forever. Neither young nor old, new. The pairings that appear in verses 42 and 43 are fascinating. For example, what exactly did Paul mean by saying sown in dishonor, raised in glory? Well, whatever the specifics, we can see that our bodies, they they will be sickness and disease proof. They will never get old or age. They will not be vulnerable to the temptations of sin. And they will be glorious. Our bodies will be awesome in the proper sense of that word, provoking awe and wonder. Verse 44 is fascinating and deserves some special attention with respect to our agenda today and also because in recent decades it's caused controversy. The verse reads like this. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Translators are sometimes a bit unsure about how to translate uh, that first part of the phrase. The NIV has translated the word psychon into the English word natural. And many other translations go this way. They, They translate the word natural, but A good number of English translations go another direction and they translate the word physical, saying something like the CEV, which says it's a physical body when it's put in the ground, but it's raised a spiritual body. Um, But that can be a little bit confusing. Does Paul mean that our resurrection bodies will be spiritual and not physical? Well, actually, the Greek phrase that Paul uses contains words that actually a lot of Christians already know. He writes, it is sown a psychon body, from which we get the word psychology and psychologists. We have a good number of psychologists here at St. Manibus. Psychology. It's sown a psychon body. It is raised a pneumaticon body. That's a word we know too as well, like things like pneumatic tires, filled with air, filled with breath, filled with spirit, pneumaticon. If there's a psychon body, there is also a pneumaticon body. The plain translation is this. It is sown a soul body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a soul body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, what does Paul mean by soul body? Actually, that's not a difficult puzzle to solve because Paul immediately tells us. 
But we will find him a bit easier to understand if we remember that in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God formed an Adam from the dust of the earth. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the Adam became a living nefesh in Hebrew, a living psyche in Greek, a living soul in English. So if we're wanting to understand what a soul body is, in contrast to a spirit body, we need to think about Adam, which is exactly what Paul does. Continuing from 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 45, just as it has been written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the soul life, the, the, the psychon, and after that, the spiritual, the pneumaticon. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. Here's the punchline. Just as we have been born in the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus of Nazareth. Paul has given us the distinction between a soul body like Adam and a life-giving spirit body like Christ. The soul body is life-receiving but not self-sustaining. The spirit body is life-giving and thus self-sustaining. Like Jesus, we will have life in ourselves. We are fitted out. God has fitted out for us in this world. God has fitted us out with soul bodies fit for this world, fit for a solar-driven economy, the solar-driven economy of this world. We have physical appetites relating to physical needs. And um, it can be intensely pleasurable to satisfy those physical appetites, but the fall rendered those appetites treacherous as guides. We live in a world now wherein it always costs initially to do the right thing. It's always easier initially to do the wrong thing. Cross-shaped behavior inherently goes against the grain, at least most of the time, before it rewards. That's the world we live in, with our soul bodies. As Christians, we know that the physical pleasures pertaining to the satisfaction of physical appetites, they must always be measured, balanced, delayed, deferred, surrendered to Jesus. Spirit bodies, though, although physical, they're definitely physical, but spirit bodies are fitted out by God for us for the new heavenly existence, fit for the economy of heaven, driven not by the sun, but rather by the Son of God. And insofar as Jesus will meet our every need in the power of the Spirit, in the satisfaction of those needs, there will be intense pleasure and satisfaction. He will satisfy us with eternal pleasures at his right hand. 
gratuitous kindness, generosity, mercy, compassion, patience, all that cross-shaped behavior will be immensely pleasurable immediately. It'll be fantastic. For as is Jesus now, so we will be too. Will we be male and female? Will there be sex and family? Well, very famously, uh, Jesus said in answer to the Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection, Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. Gender, sex, marriage, th- those things relate to the needs of this world and the, need, and, and the realities of this world. We live in an age wherein people are actually acutely conscious of gender being a part of identity. We're also living in an age where people are desperately concerned about the satisfaction of their romantic and erotic needs. It can be alarming. And it's not necessarily to our shame that it is alarming to hear that such things are actually only temporal, contingent, a passing thing that is passing away. I'm married to, to, to Joe in this life and very pleased that that is so. But if I'm understanding Jesus correctly here, we, we won't be married in the next age. I'm a male in this life. I'm a man. Will I be so in the next age after the resurrection? I don't know. But if so, then our maleness and femaleness will have a meaning and a purpose that perhaps we cannot yet fully understand. For we will all be married to Jesus, the Lamb of God. With respect to the second coming of Christ, Peter was writing about Jesus' return when he said, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, insofar as God our Father wants every one of his children to be saved, we must remember that not every one of his children have even been born yet. Conjecturally, then, it would seem that When Jesus returns, that will be the end forever, not just of death, but also of birth. All the human beings ever to have been created will have been created. In our age now, each new baby boy or baby girl is a unique expression of the image of God. And while that process continues, there's immeasurable joy in that. But actually, we have an even greater hope, an even greater joy. The coming of Christ, the judgment of the world, the redemption of our bodies, the transformation of the world. 
Can we be sure that all of this is going to happen? Yes, we can be sure all of this is going to happen. The corporate proof to the world through the church is the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. That's the proof. He is the proof. His resurrection being seen and witnessed by an abundance of witnesses. The individual proof to each one of us, in addition to that corporate proof, we've we've each got an individual proof within us, and that is the gift of the Holy Spirit, the deposit guaranteeing everything which is to come. Our faith in Jesus Christ, that God-given knowledge that Jesus really is the Son of God, sent down from heaven, the Holy One of Israel, that God-given insight, ah, yes, that's who he is, that God-given insight is God's proof to each one of us that he intends to save us. From thinking about us before the creation of the world to glorification at the second coming, he's going to finish the job. The fact that you believe in Jesus is the proof that this is going to happen. And this faith is proof in our hearts, and it is also a witness to the world. And seeing that Christians live in the hope of a bodily resurrection, what might it mean to live in the hope of a better resurrection? For the author of the book of Hebrews writes, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Um, As you may know, um, that statement appears towards the end of a long list of Old Testament heroes of faith, men and women who, who trusted God and lived by faith and who endured opposition and suffered very considerably because of their faith in the God of the Bible. And indeed, many times they suffered even unto a painful death. But what they show us, what they show us, not Paul, uh, the the author's point is that the secret to the spiritual life is to live the coming realities before they arrive. For we see them even if the people around us don't. We practice being people of the future. Indeed, In such imitation, we become aliens to this world. People from a different world. People for whom the physical pleasures and worldly satisfactions and material comforts are actually of little consequence because what we're practicing is the gratuitous kindness, the generosity, mercy, compassion, forgiveness, reconciliation, and patience. That that in these things we know, and this cross-shaped style of life, in that there is intense pleasure and satisfaction. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.